Hello and welcome to Abemus Papam, episode 252, Gregory the 16th. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Abemus Papam. Today's Pope was born Bartolomeo Alberto Capillari on September 18, 1765, to a family of minor Venetian nobles. He was the youngest child, and normally we say that he would be destined from a church from a young age, but the reality is the opposite. His parents didn't want him to enter religious life, but he was inspired by his older sister, who entered a convent. So when he was 20 years old, he discerned a vocation with the Camaldolese hermits, now, you probably don't remember us talking about the Camaldolese a long time ago, but St. Peter Damien was associated with them. They were an order of Benedictine hermits founded in the 11th century. And so he took the religious name Mauro upon entering in 1785 and commenced his theological studies for the priesthood. In 1787, he was ordained a priest and began teaching theology and philosophy for his order. In 1795, Father Mauro Capillari was called to Rome to serve as the secretary of the head of the Camaldolese order. While he was there, he was caught up in the turmoil surrounding the French Revolution and wanted to do something to support the exiled Pope Pius VI, who had been captured by the French Revolutionary Army, which was still in the neighborhood. So he published a small, very academic work condemning the French invaders called The Triumph of the Holy See in the Church against the assaults of the innovators rejected and refuted by their own arguments. It wasn't particularly brilliant, but it was courageous, and people took notice. He was appointed then the abbot of a monastery in Rome shortly afterwards, then he was named the procurator general of the Camaldolese. And he had to leave Rome when Napoleon captured it again and return when Pope Pius VII returned. Apparently the Pope twice tried to appoint him a bishop and he refused. But eventually he was named prefect of the Congregation for the Propagation of the Faith. In March of 1825 he was named a cardinal. First he was named in pectore, that is secretly, but in 1826 his appointment was made public. Now he was named a cardinal but he was never named a bishop. And with the conclave that elected Pope Pius VIII and the conclave which followed his short pontificate, Cardinal Capillari found himself as a member of the Zelati, or the more traditionalist wing of the College of Cardinals. As has been the case for many conclaves, now a firm majority couldn't be found for one of the many frontrunners, and after 50 days, Cardinal Capillari was chosen as the compromise candidate. He was elected February 2nd, 1831, and he took the name Gregory XVI after Pope Gregory XV, the founder of the Congregation for the Propagation of the Faith, which he served in before his election. Now, because he was not yet a bishop, he had to be ordained to the episcopacy, which happened on February 6th, four days after his election. Pope Gregory XVI was the last non-bishop to be elected to the papacy, at least as of this recording. But before that happened, just two days after his election, a large portion of the territory of the papal states revolted. Now, if you remember from past episodes, revolts in parts of the papal states had been brutally repressed, especially under Pope Leo XII, but the repression only pushed the discontent underground. And with the uprising of 1831, the Pope didn't have the resources to reestablish order, so he had to ask the Austrians for help. And their presence calmed the situation, but as soon as they left, the uprising started over again, and it never is easy to have some foreign power in there establishing order on your own territory. It's kind of embarrassing, and it shows a sign of weakness. And over the course of his papacy, Gregory's going to have to deal with several of these uprisings. The, the turmoil and the ferment in central Italy is, is great at this time. And he often will have to resort to calling on foreign powers to help assert order. And oftentimes their actions weren't very altruistic. They were in it for their own kind of territorial grabs. Now, around Europe, the Pope faced liberal and anti-clerical movements, and he responded by siding with absolutism and church supremacy. 
The most famous of these disputes happened in France, where a party of more liberal Catholics preached total separation of church and state politically. The Pope met with the leaders of the movement, Felicite de Lamennais, I did not pronounce that right, and the Dominican friar Pierre Lacordaire, who tried to plead their own point of view. But in the end, the Pope sided against them and wrote the encyclical Mirari Vos in 1832. The encyclical condemns freedom of conscience, freedom of the press, and it reminds Catholics that they have a duty to submit to the rightful prince in their country. So needless to say, the encyclical caused significant backlash across Europe, which was becoming more liberal in these areas. There are many other similar situations the Pope faced in all the other various capitals of Europe, and we don't need to go into all of them right now. But lest we think that Pope Gregory was an utterly traditionalist Pope, he did have a pragmatic side. He was able to discern the way that things were moving in the world. In a period full of political and rational revolution, the Pope decided on a course of action diplomatically to work with whatever new governments came into being in the course of a revolution. So, for example, in South America, there were a series of Bolivarian revolutions that brought about new countries, and he decided to work with those governments instead of insisting on working for the King of Spain or the King of Portugal, who still claimed jurisdiction there. Now, it didn't necessarily mean that he agreed with those governments or that he was going to support those governments, but it was a pragmatic response that he would still appoint resident bishops there, and oftentimes he would even appoint native-born bishops rather than Spanish or Portuguese bishops. Other examples of surprising openness can be found in his approval of marriages between Catholics and non-Catholics in various European countries and his ability to work with those who had disagreed with him. Likewise, in Belgium, which declared its independence from the Netherlands in 1830, he worked, worked with liberals who wanted to establish freedom of worship in the national constitution. And he eventually established diplomatic relations with the new nation, even though he disagreed with that practice. It was clear that though he had a very traditional view of the world, Pope Gregory was not as hardline as he is often portrayed, and that he had a discerning understanding of world affairs. Now, despite all this, the situation was not great in Italy, though through most of his pontificate, and it's clear that the revolutionary fervor unleashed by the French a generation before was not dissipating. By the mid-1840s, the revolutionary mindset had only grown and was just waiting for a spark to be unleashed fully. But on June 1st, 1846, after a brief illness, which no one thought was very serious, Pope Gregory XVI died. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica, and this revolutionary ferment had to be addressed by his successor, Blessed Pius IX, and we will talk about him next time. Thank you for listening to Abimus Papam. You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.